Holy God, we are grateful for the season of Advent that makes us wait and reminds us in our waiting that what we really long for cannot be provided through a a Republican story or a Democratic story or even an American story. What we long for and what we need most can only come through a story as big and as wonderful as the kingdom of God breaking into earth. And we ask you, Holy One, as we have waited and as we continue to wait for the healing that you bring us, would you purify our desires? Would you help us to lean in and listen closely to the one story that matters most? And as we do, would you provide healing to your body? Your body, the church, that seems to be just as divided as everyone else. Would you bring healing to families, to lives, to marriages, to bodies? Would you bring healing to our country, this huge amalgamation of people from shore to shore that we love and yet we lament over? the brokenness that is among us. Heal us, O God of Israel. Let us find our rest, our healing, our rejoicing in you. And we ask this and we ask that you make this our most fervent request. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our reading for today comes from Isaiah chapter 7. I invite you to stand as we read these words together from the New International Version. We will be reading from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And odd though it may sound, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. And so we say together, thanks be to God. Long people, I'm going to start using that line. 
The older I get, the more I want to say it. Uh, my name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. I've introduced myself already, but here we are in this fourth Sunday in the season of Advent. It is a season by which we anticipate and await the arrival of the one who can save us, not in the way in which we expect, but in the way in which we all need. And the Isaiah text, as Mikhail said, though it seems quite strange, is actually good news for us this evening. And so uh, we want to hear from this text. When my children were little, they would from time to time at night call me into their bedroom. And when I'd check on them, uh, they, they would say this, Dad, will you come lay in the bed with me? I would tell them it was time to go to sleep. And then they would say these words. You know what the words are if you're a parent. I'm scared. In the dark, their minds would begin to race, and fear is actually a real thing. And it doesn't just present itself to children who imagine bad guys coming in the window or monsters in the closet. It creeps up on all of us from time to time. Fear is legitimate, and there are real things in the world to be fearful about, to be scared about. And it's important for us to ask here in this season of Advent, what do we do with our fear? Advent is a season. It's the season that comes prior to Christmas. We call it the season of anticipation or the season of expectation. But some say that Advent has a little, they say it's a little Lent. They say Advent actually has a little bit of Lent to it. It's the season that comes prior to the one who has come to save or the coming of our Lord. That is what we celebrate in Christmas. And, and the season of Advent, honestly, can be kind of bleak. And frankly, for people in our community, that is really true. For some in our community, this season has been a very hard season. I've said, uh, how are you, to maybe 50 people as I walked into the, into the sanctuary this evening, and I got a most common response. I'm tired. You could call the season of Advent the season of anticipation and expectation, but you could also call it the season of fear. That would be a really accurate description. There is a lot to worry about in the world. There is a lot of fear. And we find ourselves here in the readings of Isaiah during this season. Isaiah's world was not much different than our own. After King Solomon of Israel died in 931 BC, a series of kings followed after him. And under King Solomon and his father David, you've heard about David, you've heard David the king, David and Goliath. David kills the giant and eventually becomes king first of Judah and then of all of Israel. But God's, after, under David's leadership, God, uh, God's people saw prosperity and promise. Things were great under David. And the Old Testament says that those who followed King David and King Solomon, some of those kings were really good kings and some were really evil kings. And under the evil kings, the northern part of the country, which we know to be now is Israel, broke away from the southern part, which is Judah. And by the time we got to Isaiah's day, which was about 735 to 715 BC, the southern kingdom is now being led by a king whose name is Ahaz, king of Judah. This is a picture of him right here. That's not true. That was supposed to be funny. 
season of tiredness is what Advent is, I guess. Unlike the king, uh, the good kings that before that came before him, you need to know this: that Ahaz was evil. There was a time when he even sacrificed his own son in a fire, which which was a regular practice of the pagan neighboring countries. You can read that whole story if you'd like to in Second Kings chapter sixteen. Well, Ahaz began his rule when he was only twenty years old, and he had a lot to be afraid of. When his dad. Jotham was king. Ahaz was just a brat that ran around the castle driving all the fast cars. He knew that eventually the kingdom would be his someday, but he was thrust into responsibility sooner than he was anticipating when his dad unexpectedly died. And when Ahaz took the throne, he had discovered that he had inherited a mess. He was immediately thrown into a political quandary and, and more importantly, into a personal threat. But not only that, he was inexperienced and he was immature. He was certainly a target for neighboring countries. And he realized as soon as he took the throne that his life was on the line. So right as Ahaz becomes king, there are these two other kings that are named Reason and Pekah from neighboring kingdoms. And they decide to join forces and they march an army into the capital of Judah where Ahaz was king and they began to attack it ferociously. They got together and they were going to get rid of or, uh, or dominate Ahaz. And Ahaz was scared out of his mind. So here's how it goes. Reason and Pekah figured that Ahaz was inexperienced and weak. That's true. Their plan was to overthrow Ahaz. That's true. They wanted to put a puppet king in his place named Tabeel, take command of Judah's army and their people, make one huge gigantic fighting force. And the reason they wanted to do all this was so they would be able to withstand the threat of another neighboring king whose name was Tiglath-Pileser III. Did you get all that? Lots and lots is going on. As I said to you, He's found himself, King Ahaz has found himself in a, in a mess. It's like trying to follow all of the stuff, all of the accusations, all of the phone calls, all of the he said, she said stuff of the impeachment hearings. When I watch it, I can't keep all the details together. That's what's happening here during this time around 700, 700 years before Jesus. Now, this whole thing is called the Syro-Ephraimitic Coalition. Pekah and Reason getting together to create a fighting force to kill Ahaz and put a puppet king in his place. It's an ancient version of getting into bed with your political enemies for your own political purposes. And, and there is an underlying story that's going on here in Isaiah. Ahaz is looking to make a deal and ally himself with a foreign nation in order to have an upper hand because he's threatened by these two who are creating this gigantic fighting force. It's funny to see how history repeats itself. It's funny to see how the biblical narrative speaks to the reality of our own lives. There are very few people who know what it feels like to sit on a throne. Very few people. There are a few people that have, there are very few people that have ultimate decision making power regarding the complexities of high stakes military and political leadership. There are very, very, very few people that know what it feels like to have executive privilege. 
There's only five people alive that know what it feels like to sit behind the desk in the Oval Office here in Washington, D.C. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Those five men belong to the world's most exclusive fraternity. And several of them have said that no one can, can imagine the unbelievable weight of responsibility that he's felt while he sat behind that desk. And this is the way that Ahaz feels. As a young man, 20 years old, just a couple years older than my son Watson, he was thrust into this position. And now, in their initial attack, Reason and Pekah were in, unsuccessful in capturing the capital of Judah. There was a considerable loss of life, but the Judean army was uh, able to hold them off, and Ahaz escapes by the skin of his teeth. But as you can imagine, because he was ex unexperienced, this, this leaves Ahaz twisted up in fear. He's fearful that there's going to be another attack. And while we might not know what it feels like to make these kind of high-stakes decisions, there are times, too, when we have sleepless nights. There are times, too, when we feel worry, fret, anxiety, depression. There are times when we think like Ahaz... The pressure is great, and what am I going to do? Ahaz is completely unnerved in this situation. He looks at the death count over and over and over. He, he does the math constantly to see how many soldiers are left to protect him in case there's another attack. He's constantly looking over his shoulder, wondering who is with him, or who might betray him. He worries all the time. And the maps. He pours over the map. He lays them out. He pours, them, he pours over them. He studies them with intensity. He asks himself, what are the escape routes? What are the roads that I can go? Where might I hide if they come again? Where will we be secure enough? Where will we secure enough supplies for the armies? Will they, will they have resources to fight if they come again? And then he inspects the water resources. When the coalition by Raisin and Pekah came the first time, when they attacked the first time, he asked the question, did they play with our water supply? Did they tamper with it? Was our water supply here in the city poisoned? And he begins to convince himself in his worry, if they come again, there's absolutely no chance. The situation is too complex. It's too complicated. It's too much of a quandary. It's too big. It's too much of a mess. And then God does something that is wonderfully God. He sends somebody to speak to Ahaz. And that man's name was Isaiah. And Isaiah's job was to describe things from God's vantage point to tell Ahaz the truth about what was going on even though things seemed bleak and he did this in order to invite Ahaz to see the world not as it was but as God was going to make it so God goes to Isaiah and he says uh, Ahaz is down there and he's inspecting the water supply he's really worried he's afraid so I want you to give Ahaz this message so Isaiah goes to Ahaz and he says, you know the stuff that you've been worrying about? You know that stuff that seems so impossible for you? That stuff that is 
real and so difficult and so scary, that stuff that means life and death, that stuff that you didn't create but you inherited somehow, that stuff that keeps you awake at night? Well, don't worry about that stuff. What I want you to do is I want you to be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, do not lose heart because those guys that you worry about, Reason and Pekka, well, they're like burned out firecrackers. They're hot for a little bit. They smolder a little bit, but all the bark, all the boom is gone. They're not as strong as you think. They're all bark and no bite. Don't worry about them. I know what they want to do, God says, and they won't do it, I promise you. Could, it, could this be God's message that is coming to Isaiah and then was relayed to Ahaz? Actually, God's message that comes to Isaiah and then comes to you about your situation? I mean, it seems that God knows Ahaz better than Ahaz knows himself because Isaiah continues, Now, Ahaz, don't do what I think you're going to do. Don't go off and make a mess more than what is already is. Don't think that you can come up with a better plan than what God has. Don't go off thinking you have to carry this whole thing on your own. Don't do anything stupid, Ahaz. Isaiah has this simple message in the midst of a big mess. Be patient. Trust in God. How does that make you feel when I say that? Be patient. Trust in God. I mean, life is a mess, right? It's a disaster. Sometimes we've created problems for ourselves. Sometimes we've inherited them. For the person that continues to struggle with alcoholism, be patient, trust in God. For the person who was abused, be patient, trust in God. For the one whose business partner took them down, be patient, trust in God. For the person who's lost a loved one, be patient, trust in God. Be patient, trust in God. I mean, does this phrase seem empty to you? Because I think it did to Ahaz. It sounds like a quip. It sounds like a stupid phrase that religious people tend to say when they don't know what else to say. This life is real life for Ahaz. The decisions that he makes have real consequences, serious consequences. This is scary business. Lives are on the line. His life is on the line. And the text tells us, be patient, trust in God. And it seems empty when we say it that way. Does God really know what we're up against? Does God really care? Does God have any interest in our day-to-day -day lives? And if so, what does God actually think about all this? Now, God's promise seems to hold no water until we get to verse 10. And then God does something wonderfully God. He doesn't just leave Ahaz with quips. God doesn't just send messages to Ahaz with pleasantries. God doesn't send Isaiah with meaningless sayings that were to get him out of times and trials and worries. But God's message actually holds promise. In fact, God says, Ahaz, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask me for a sign so you'll know that I'll keep my promise. Go ahead, 
You can ask. I want to make sure that you know that you can trust me. So go ahead and ask. But if you ask me for a sign, there is one rule, and it's this. You have got to be extravagant. Now, I read this part of the text, and I hear a voice that sounds like George Bailey from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. The one we just watched, you know? What do you want, Mary? You like that? That's my Jimmy Stewart. What do you want, Mary? What do you want? You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. See? I'll get, what do you think? I'll give you the moon, Mary. Sound just like him, don't I? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter! I could just hear it. Isaiah is using a George Bailey accent when he's talking to Ahaz. What do you want, Ahaz? You want the moon? Okay, ask God for a sign. Go ahead, just say the word and he'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea, see? It's like, gee, it's like God is saying, be patient. I'll give you a sign that you can be trusted. Ask for it so you can see my promise and ask for whatever you want. So the question is now for you. What would your sign be? What would it be that you would ask of God? What do you need God to demonstrate or to reveal to you that God is worthy of keeping God's promises? What in your wildest imagination would you come up with? Would you ask for the moon? Or would you do like Ahaz, who rejects God's offer? He does something stupid. He comes up with his own plan. He cannot trust God. He won't. Fear overcomes Ahaz, and he figures that God must not realize the kind of mess that Ahaz is in. Too complicated. God doesn't get that Ahaz's life is on the line, that it's high stakes time for him. So you know what God does? God lets Ahaz choose his own way. Ahaz makes his own arrangements, his paranoia is too great, his fear is too much, so he makes the worst mistake of his life. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the leader of the world's super global power, the leader of Assyria, the country that Reason and Pekah were fearful of, the country that was diametrically opposed to the ways of God, and he appeals to Tiglath-Pileser for help. He does not listen to Isaiah. He doesn't trust God. Instead, he gives in to fear. And he makes allowances and alliances with God's enemies. And Tiglath-Pileser was one of God's enemies because he was more concerned about saving his own position than he was about preserving his nation and his people as God's people. And in order to make all this alliance happen, he goes into the temple and he tears out, in God's temple, he tears out all of the gold and all of the silver in God's temple to pay for protection. So as a result, the Assyrian army, which is so powerful, destroys reason, destroys Pekah, and all looks good until Tiglath-Pileser III turns on Ahaz and he then destroys Judah making Ahaz a puppet king with no power. And now Ahaz is 100% subservient to the wills and the ways of Assyria. And Assyria dominates everything. He lacked trust in God, but instead trusted in his alliances and their armies. And in the end, he lost everything. 
it can be it's a sad story. And yet, but be that as it may, however, nevertheless, having said all that, regardless, in spite of it all, even though Ahaz rejects God's sign and doesn't believe God's promise and reaps the consequences of it all, God does something that is wonderfully God. God decides to demonstrate that God is worthy of keeping his promises even though Ahab rejects him. What would you what would you ask if God said, "Go ahead and ask me. Ask me to show you something to give you a sign so that I'm that I'm going to keep my promise." Would what would you ask for? Would you ask for the moon? Well, since none of you answered, God decided to answer. And he says, I know what I'll do, God says. I'll enter the world of time and space. I'll enter into the very events of my people's lives. You know, my children used to ask me to come to them when they were in their beds at night and they were afraid. And this is exactly what God does. God comes to his children when they are afraid. And God reveals his goodness to Ahaz. And it looks this time, the sign is a young woman. It looks like a young woman expecting. He said, like a young woman expecting, you need to be expecting my presence. Like a birth announcement that you, you know, and when somebody's expecting, it feels like you have to wait forever, but you know it comes soon. So just, just wait. The birth announcement is this, it's this announcement that is rendered with an epic present tense, which means that the sign is this, that God is actually with you right now. When, when offered a sign, would anyone have ever asked, God, you know what I would really like? The sign that I really want is for you to come and join me in this mess. But that is exactly what God does. It is so wonderfully God. God enters into the very events that scare us. He enters into actual history. God enters into space and time. He enters into a world with guns and bombs and swords and spears. He enters into politics and legalities and homelessness. This birth announcement means that God enters into the very ambiguities of human history. God enters into the dysfunction, the twists, and the turns, and the ironies of that history. For 700 years, the people of God held on to this promise. That they held on to this promise that came in their mess. They confessed that God was with them, and they trusted that promise. You know what's interesting? My Bible has 1,000... 48 pages. It's this large salvation history. It's this large salvation story. But it isn't until page 813 where the protagonist actually makes his face known. And it's there in the Gospel of Matthew who said, the sign has shown up. It's a boy. Congratulations. And his name is Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us which means that God crashed into creation is, and he, Jesus, is the visible image of God's promise. So you don't have to be afraid. You can trust him for he is with you. 
You know, when my children were afraid, they would call me into their bedroom. Come and lay with me, dad, is what they would say. And whether it was spring or summer or fall or winter, this is the absolute truth. Whether it was spring or summer or fall or winter, whether it was Advent, Epiphany, Christmas, Lent, whatever, I would go and I would lay down with them. And do you know what I would say to them while we were looking at the ceiling in the dark? I would say to them these words, do not be afraid. For I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be your sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, the very elements of this earth. And he will be lying in a manger. That is the sign. That is the promise. He is with us. One more thing that I think is so interesting, just as a side note, okay? I think it's funny that Isaiah tells us what this boy will eat. He says he will eat curds and honey. This is, a, this is, a, this is significantly symbolic. It is what we call an eschatological promise, which means it is a promise about our future. And the promise is that there is a future. Emmanuel, God with us, will go with us through our mess and carry us like he did the Jewish slaves into a land of milk and honey, into a land and a time of promise. This is God doing something that is so wonderfully God. He shows up among us. He lives with us. He carries our burdens. He enters our mess and he promises a good future. And even though Ahaz rejects God's offer and promise, God gives one anyway. You know, there is no denying that Ahaz's situation is complicated. And there is no denying that our situation from time to time seems complicated. But the word is, be patient. Trust me. When we hear that, it doesn't seem to be good enough for us. Not when there's addiction and cancer and poverty and violence and broken relationships and war and divorce and death. It doesn't seem to be good enough for us. But the good news is, it's not good enough for God either. And so God makes his way into our lives to be with us. This is why we call him Emmanuel. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. Much of my work as the pastor of 8th Street Church is to hear the story of people's mess. I have heard stories of brokenness and despair, lies, disappointment. Over the last number of weeks, I've heard stories of death and disease and divorce And there are people who have wondered and they need you to give them a sign. And the sign among all of us and the hope that we hold on to is that you are a God that actually enters into our mess. It is a radically new idea. It is more significant and more powerful than if we wished for the moon and you pulled it down with a lasso, uh, it it would pale in comparison to what you've done. So for that, we are grateful. In this season of Advent, 
a season of expectation, a season of hope, a season of anticipation, a season of longing, a season of desire, a season of fear. Would the God that is with us reveal God's self to us so that as we lay at night or in our worry or are in our despair or in our anxiety or in our poor choices or in the junk we have inherited or in the stuff we've created, would you demonstrate that you are with us? And like Ahaz, or unlike Ahaz, help us to follow in your way so that we might not experience the consequences of doing it our own way. And may we trust you. This is what we hope for. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in that way. And we give our lives to you. We say we will follow you in obedience. Enter into our mess. Enter into the mess that is Oklahoma City. Enter into the mess that is Oklahoma Enter into the mess that is the United States of America. Enter into the mess that is our world. And do your great work of redemption. We pray these things in the strong name of your son, the one who is with us. Amen and amen. You know, the essence of God entering space and time. The demonstration of God breaking into history is... uh, is seen most clearly at the Lord's table. And it comes in this story that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, at dinner took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this is my blood. It was shed for you. And whenever you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. It is the promise of something to come. The very elements of bread and the cup are examples of how God has entered into this world. And the cross is the sign that God has broken in and done something about our mess. And it is at this table where we remember this. So uh, at our church, this is an open table. We could call it the trust table. And by coming to this table, we uh, open ourselves up to the trusting, saving work of God in Christ. This is not a church of the Nazarene table. This is Jesus's table. And all who are open and open to uh, this work of God in Christ are welcome to this table. I want to let you know that everybody who is open to receive this good grace and is open to the redemptive work and this promise, you are welcome to this table. So we want no barriers. Uh, So our bread is gluten-free. Our wine is non-alcoholic. So I invite you to come down one of our aisles to one of these. Maybe you want to come as anxious as some of our kids. But I want you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it's his gift. And so you will see people who are coming to one of our servers with their hands cupped. Make this an actual symbol, an embodied symbol that yes, unlike Ahaz, I'm going to listen to the promise of Isaiah that comes from God himself, that God will be with me in my mess and I will receive it. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle, just wave at Justin, he'll come and bring the elements to you. But come, listen, uh, come to one of these servers, listen to what they have to say, dip the bread into the cup, 
And then when you are ready, my friends, you may eat it. But please come whenever you're ready.